Stay tuned. Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah. Hello and welcome to Radio Gag. I'm Kathy Marino Thomas. And I'm Ken Kidd. And this week we're giving thanks for you, our listeners, of course, but especially for grassroots activism and the role it plays in creating change for the better of all of us. Kathy and I are so grateful to have been on the ground and in the streets for the better part of our lives. Before gag, she led marriage equality so brilliantly, and I got to help with my involvement in ACT UP and Queer Nation. And we ain't slowing down, neither. <laughs> we have a full program of interviews for you um, with ACT UP legend, educator, and journalist Ann Northrup, the host of Gay USA, and with Adam Eli Werner, who cut his teeth, his activist teeth, at Gays Against Guns, and he began his own direct action group, Voices 4. But first, Ken offers this week's In Memoriam for slain LGBTQ leader Harvey Milk. Harvey Bernard Milk, my hero, was a visionary, community leader, and a gay rights activist during the 70s. Born on May 22, 1930, in Woodmere, New York, and raised in a small middle-class Jewish family, he attended the New York State College for Teachers in Albany, enlisted in the U.S. Navy, and served in the Korean War. After four years of service, Harvey was officially questioned about his sexual orientation. He chose to leave the Navy at the rank of lieutenant junior grade and moved to New York City, where he worked as a public school teacher and Wall Street investment banker. Harvey took no shame in enjoying his sexuality, and he was an avid opera buff. Becoming more involved in politics, advocacy, and activism, in 1972, he moved to San Francisco, where he opened a camera store on Castro Street that became a meeting place in the heart of the city's growing queer community. Because of Harvey's sense of humor and theatricality, he became known as the mayor of Castro Street. After an initial unsuccessful run, in November 1977, Harvey was elected to San Francisco's Board of Supervisors becoming one of the first openly gay officials in the United States and the very first openly gay elected official in the state of California. His unprecedented win as a proudly gay candidate for public office energized the LGBT community during a time when it was experiencing rampant discrimination, hostility, and violence. As a dedicated San Francisco City County Supervisor, Harvey's political agenda included protecting gay rights, establishing daycare centers for working mothers, renovating military facilities into low-cost housing, reforming tax codes to attract businesses, and even passing a pooper-scooper law for San Francisco. Most notably, though, he was responsible for passing a stringent LGBT rights ordinance in the city of San Francisco. On November 27, 1978, Harvey Milk was gunned down at point-blank range in his office by a disgruntled former city supervisor, Dan White, who had methodically crawled through a window to escape the city hall metal director, detector, assassinated San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, and then taken the time to reload his weapon with hollow-tipped bullets to assassinate Harvey. Because he had received daily death threats, Harvey recorded several versions of his will, quote, to be read in the event of my assassination, unquote. One contained the now famous statement, if a bullet should enter my brain, let that bullet destroy every closet door. On the day he was killed, 
His nephew, Stuart Milk, a teenager at the time, came out, along with countless others across the nation. Milk served only about 11 months in office, but he became an icon in San Francisco and a martyr in the gay community. Harvey Milk was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama in 2009 as a direct result of the assassinations of Milk and Moscone In July of 1982, San Francisco became the first large city in America to ban all handguns. In exactly one week, on November 27th, it will be 40 years to the day that Harvey Milk was assassinated. Rest in power, Harvey, and thank you. Thanks, Ken. Two last things about Harvey. Um, The first is that everyone should go to YouTube and listen to the Harvey Implores clip where he literally demands that folks come out. And I would offer to our listeners that doesn't just mean about one's own sexuality, but about anything that you feel strongly about. Second, Harvey used to say, I'm Harvey Milk and I'm here to recruit you. In case you folks haven't figured it out yet, Kathy and I are here to recruit you (laughs) to join us in direct action. Speaking of, Ken and I have been fortunate to know Anne Northrup for a very long time and have worked together with her on one cause or another over the years. She really has been on the front lines and then reported on it to a nationwide syndicated audience for most of our LGBTQ struggles over the last generation. We recently sat down with Anne to hear her thoughts on direct action and its impact. So the first question I have for you, of course, is how did you get involved in grassroots work? It's, of course, a decades-long story, but I think I was first provoked uh, by watching the civil rights movement on television in the 1950s and and 60s in the living room of my suburban homes in uh, Denver, Colorado, and Massachusetts and elsewhere, and seeing people in the streets getting attacked by uh, police dogs and water cannons and being so impressed by the power of the people speaking up for their own needs and their and the needs of everyone and that made a big impression on me and then it went to the Vietnam War and that was significant for me I marched against the war I just you know just a run-of-the-mill marcher but I was part of some of those million people marches in Washington and what I saw was that those marches bringing a critical mass of people into the streets made change, forced the government to end the war. And that was just fundamentally important to me and a model that I refer to to this day. I think it is so important that people show up to force their leaders, I don't even like using that word, but people in power, forcing people in power to change what they're doing. And then I was part of the feminist movement in the 70s and eventually into uh, the LGBT movement and the AIDS activist movement in the 80s and 90s and beyond. So I was an AIDS buddy for a long time. I just want to focus on that for a minute. So how do you think that grassroots work turned the tide and made the government pay attention because they weren't paying attention at the beginning of the crisis? Shame, public shaming. Uh, You know, a lot of you say you were an AIDS buddy. I was not. And uh, people came into working on this crisis in various ways. A lot of people came in because of personal experiences, either their own HIV status or 
friends who had died or things like that. I came in politically. I came in because I, once I uh, took a close look at what was going on with AIDS, I realized that it was the exact same thing as the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War and the feminist movement. It was about people in power who were willing to let everybody else die and they would do nothing. And I said, oh my God, it's exactly the same formula here. And you can layer in a little homophobia on that. And and that's what I'm seeing in front of my eyes. So when someone pointed me towards ACT UP and I walked into that room, it was like I had found my new home within about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh boy, it's smart, idiosyncratic, cranky people. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite. (laughs) Oh man, I am home. And uh, it was joy at being able to be free to go out in the streets and uh, react to what was going on, say what I thought. Uh, yell at the government, Uh, all of that was an enormous uh, joy to be able to do. And to work with people I so loved and admired, the love in that room. And to this day, whenever I see the people I worked with there, I am so filled with uh, overflowing emotions of affection for them and admiration. And it was just a great gift to do that work. I think people have to choose their own venues. Some people will work in the government. Some people will work in nonprofits. Some people will write letters to their members of Congress. Some people will donate. All of that is necessary and valid. But for me, the joy comes in getting into the streets, and there must be this grassroots, out-in-the-streets component to really force change, to reveal to the country what is really going on. So tying that into gun violence protection, I see a lot of parallels uh, between uh, the beginnings of the AIDS crisis and your statement about people in power letting people die. Do you see that direct parallel? And do you think that the same sort of grassroots activism will move the needle on the on the terrible, you know, gun violence protection laws we have in this country. What is happening with gun violence is the shocking uh, acme of this kind of uh, equation. The fact that uh, the government can see little children gunned down at Newtown, uh, kids gunned down at Parkland, hundreds of people shot in Las Vegas, uh, Endless, endless stories of gun violence, whether it is, you know, whoever is doing the shooting, whoever the victims are, the fact that the government is more concerned about donations from uh, gun rights, I put that in quotes, uh, proponents, than they are about people literally dying in the streets and the schools and everywhere else is just shocking, shocking. Uh, So, yes, I think that uh, grassroots activism is crucial for gun violence prevention because we must take the lid off this. We must scream about the fact that this is going on and just, you know, it's the emperor's new clothes. We have to talk about this openly and, and really confront those who are refusing to do anything about it. You know, our human being campaign, Gays Against Guns, has this campaign of people dressed in white and veiled and holding a placard of someone killed in gun violence, it parallels to me to the the um, presentation of someone dropping to the ground every 10 seconds to signify how many people 
died of AIDS in a day. Yes, dying. Right. Yes, dying and holding uh, tombstones over ourselves. Right. I have done the uh, uh, the human being. That's right. Thing I've done you it. Sure did uh, at BlackRock. Yes, and I, it's first intense. of all, it, it's extremely mm. intense. And for you and I, it's difficult because we have to stay quiet. Not easy. No, <laughs> I say it's a great relief to stay quiet. <laughs> I think being a human being is uh, is a pleasure. Oh, I found it so frustrating. <laughs> I loved it because I didn't have to yell and scream, and I could just be there and be a presence, a powerful presence. So I recommend it to anyone who doesn't want to yell and scream. <laughs> so you and I were at Stonewall the day after the Pulse shooting with yes. the rally that Queer yes. Nation put together. And that day, you know, you spoke really eloquently about gun violence and our enemies and, you know, our safe spaces, all that sort of thing. So now, every day, as you know, because you read the news and, and report the news, we are bombarded. We are hit seemingly with an attack every day in one way or the other. So we talked about the, you talk about the importance of gun violence prevention and keeping it front and center. How do we, what can we do? What tactics can we do? What, we just keep hitting it at home? What do we, we just, what do we do? Well, I must say that taking on this uh, issue, subject, this reality of our lives, I don't want to reduce it to right. an issue. Uh, it's, an important uh, reality. It's daunting. Mm -hmm. it, the forces uh, raid in favor of ignoring gun violence and promoting the uh, use of guns or the ownership of guns is enormous. It's uh, every everything from arms sales to Saudi Arabia to personal gun ownership. It covers the waterfront and it is, you know, they've got guns. Right. This is powerful stuff. So there, I don't think there is a good model for this. I think you're in new territory, mm -hmm. but uh, I can only imagine that persistence and uh, being loud is the only way to go You and eventually sway in the country. You know, we did end the Vietnam War. It took years to do it. And uh, a really concentrated, critical mass of people willing to work on it. I think those people are out there about gun violence. I think it's really, really difficult, but really worthwhile doing. Anne is a force to be reckoned with. I love the fact that she inspires all of us to dig down deep and be the change that we hope to see. Next up... We'll hear from Adam Eli Warner, a protege of ours, right, Kathy? I love that kid. <laughs> Adam himself is a force to be reckoned with and is a perfect voice for linking together the past efforts of activists, our current ongoing work, and new synergies for what we'll continue to be working on, along with new ways to achieve our goals. Hi, I'm Adam Eli. I'm thrilled to be here with two of my friends and mentors and biggest supporters. I've learned everything I know about activism from like the two of you and Kevin, and also by like asking questions, but also by by watching. So talk to us more about um, how you got your start. What was your first foray into activism like? How did it feel? All of that. Well, first of all, Anne is such is also such a hero and an icon because I think of her as you know like the queen of media, and I like I like to think, and I tell my group often that you know if ACT UP um, was starting right now, we would like 
the Anne Northrop equivalent would be like all over social media. And so I always think about her when we talk about like being media savvy. Um, and I taught everyone week before our protest, we talked about talking through the press that's right. about what you want to say. And that's, I associate that with Anne. Yeah. Let's go back in time though to your first Gays Against Guns meeting. Unless I'm mistaken, I was at the first Gays Against Guns meeting ever. I was not too much of an activist. It ran in my family, but upon moving to New York, I got a little lost. And then, boom, out of nowhere, it felt like Orlando happened. And I came out in 2009. And so it felt like, you know, since I came out, the, like, Obama, Lady Gaga, Ellen, Glee, felt like things were just going in an upward swing the whole time. And so this was the first time I'd ever really experienced a direct threat or attack. How did that feel? It was a mix. It was, it was so shocking because for some reason I just thought it's over now. Like we all get to be, things were just kept on getting better and better and better. I thought it didn't occur to me that these types of attacks would still be happening. So once you felt shock, then did you feel powerless or empowered or maybe both? So I didn't know what to do. So I posted about it a lot. And then there was a memorial and I posted on my Instagram, if you want to go to the memorial but you don't want to go alone, you can meet me at this corner and we'll all go together. And like 35 people showed up. And at the time, I didn't have much of a following. So that was sort of like the first time I was like, oh, there's power in using social media as a tool to activate people. Cut to three days later, I'm in the first Gays Against Guns meeting. The room is packed. The room is a little smelly. There is a bag. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I remember it. <laughs> there are people... There are no seats left. There are people standing in the corners. There's a bag of a huge bag of peanut butter M and M that's been passed around, <laughs> and there still is. Right. Yeah. At every gag meet, <laughs> there's always candy. There's always candy, and it was just amazing to see the power in the room. And it was clear to me even then that I was in a room with some serious power players from the AIDS and marriage movement, and I watched the lines be drawn from ACT UP to Gays Against Guns. And I remember it was the evening of our first, the evening for our first protest, and someone said sort of offhand, we need someone to do the social media from the protest. Can anyone do it? My hand just like, without thinking about it, just shot in the air. And I did the Instagram and Facebook Live at the same time from our Black Rock protest, and that's when Ken's iconic, the iconic bells Mm -hmm. (laughs) ringing in my ears forever went off. And then from that moment on, I I was just on social media duty wherever we wherever we went. And you did a fantastic job of it. Thank you. And I remember feeling so grateful because everyone was so nice. <laughs> everyone was so nice. And I really got to, it really gave me the room to experiment. Um, we, were, we were happy we had someone young enough to understand Exactly. <laughs> Every, any, I remember thinking, I said to my friends, I was like, anything that I do, they're just like, this is amazing. Thank yeah. you so much. Because we have no idea. <laughs> we're in the newspaper and flyer crowd. <laughs> yeah. So That's it was, awesome. It, so then fast forward to... The birth of Voices 4. Voices 4. So Voices 4 um, came about by mistake. Um, news broke about what was happening in Chechnya. And I felt like all around me there were these sort of like... People were crying. People were talking about it a lot. And talking about it a lot on Instagram and not doing anything about it. And my Instagram activism rule is don't post anything unless it's either hopeful or a direct call to action. And there was nothing hopeful and there were no calls to action. So I called Kathy and <laughs> I, said, I said, how do I get a permit? And can you introduce me um, to Stacy from Stonewall? And ran, and I, I, and I called you also, mm-hmm. and I ran my plan. I said, I want to march from Stonewall to Trump Tower. 
what do you think and will you help me with the logistics and you did and um it was just supposed to be one march but it became clear that there was a bigger movement because our russian our russian our post-chechen counterparts explained that when one government attacks lgbt people with impunity it sort of snowballs and so since chechnya the news broke lot not this past april the april before it's Egypt, Tanzania, Tunisia, Indonesia. It's everywhere. There's 76 countries that are basically have very, very, very similar problems in varying degrees. Yeah. And they're doing these things. They're basically, and it's all, it all looks the same. They're Make doing... it 77 if you count the United States. Yeah. So let me ask you the same question I asked Anne. Um, what is it about grassroots activism that you think is effective? Oh, just when it came to Voices War, I looked around at what, what my options were of what I, tangible actions that I could take. Because I didn't feel like sort of like a metal plate went off in my head, like this like post-Holocaust, like Jewish boy, like I had to do something. And <laughs> I remember the human rights campaign was telling me, I followed the links, you know, like I followed through, like click here to click here, and they wanted me to send an email petition to Trump. And I was like, this is a genocide. I'm not sending an email petition. I was looking around and I didn't see any other options. But all in all, you feel grassroots activism is a powerful tool and you feel that it is effective? I definitely feel like grassroots activism is a powerful tool and it's effective. And I feel like direct action is effective also because when you're taking direct action, you're really saying to someone, we're not letting you get away with it. I find that there's very little gray area if you're standing outside someone's housing, as another term I learned from Gag, name, blame, and shame. These same purges were taking place in Uzbekistan. So we got in like, you know, a little army of queer kids and we all had, we had a kiss in, all our act up, and all made out in front of the consulate, had a great photographer, Ryan McGinley, take photos, and then sent them all around the world as far as they would go. It's a beautiful thing. So there are a lot of people from different constituencies that call people who do what you do and what we do an angry mob. Would you categorize us as angry? Anger, I think sometimes anger is effective. But again, it sort of works with that sort of like last result. Like, we don't want to be standing out there screaming. We'd be happy if Six Hour would like actually listen and take and make meaningful change. But they're not. So here we are. If the government of Uzbekistan was willing to be like, you're right, we shouldn't so much kill gay people in the street. Um, So it's not that we're an angry mob. It's that we've been driven to having no other choice. Absolutely. That's what I think. That's what I think. I would also offer that I have found support and love and family in this sort of a mob. (laughs) You know, there's lots of care and there's lots of nurturing. And uh, I think all of us bear witness to that because if it hadn't been for somebody helping us along, we wouldn't still be doing it. Definitely. And also there's magic that comes from doing direct action with a group of people, like things that you could never have predicted. Like our group was invited to um, a conference where we saw a group of intersex activists speak and no one in our group was aware of this issue at all. And it impact it hit us all. And so we decided to take on take that on as one of our causes and we protested outside of the Cornell Wheel Hospital. And then it turns out that one of our core members was intersex and she came out to the group and it was the first person she ever came out to. And like... I did not plan that when we were marching. It's inspiring, though. You know, like, magic happens. Things just happen. You meet people, you connect. I would say so. I would also say there's power in numbers, and right now we need all the power we can get, so. That was so great. Adam Eli was out there with us last night at Stonewall Park. 
GAG brought our human beings in commemoration of Nash, uh, National Trans Day of Remembrance, uh, remembering trans folks who'd been killed with a gun in 2018. He was posting all across social media, getting us coverage in Out Magazine while we were still in the street. Yeah, it was a super powerful action, and we had tremendous interaction with passersby as well as that traffic online. So kudos to you, Kathy. Thanks, Ken. We always need folks to stand in as human beings. It's always a powerful experience for anyone who does it and provides an incredible visual for our message. Um, the next GAG meeting is December 6th. Come and learn more about it. Definitely. And at that meeting, we'll also be reporting back on an incredible Times Square protest march and rally that we put together after the Pittsburgh and Thousand Oaks shootings. You know, at that, we engaged with a huge Sunday afternoon crowd of tourists and theater goers. We handed out over 600 flyers, and we heard from passionate folks who were already working on gun violence prevention. But we also heard from some from students from Thousand Oaks who were now reluctant activists because of the carnage in their hometown. That's not even all. <laughs> Since we've been discussing strategies for fighting Wells Fargo and uh, issues the NRA, uh, they issued the NRA credit card, uh, and they funded gun the gun industry with a whopping $431 million since the Sandy Hook shooting. Which doesn't include $40 million more that Wells Fargo sent to Sturm Ruger, assault weapons manufacturers, just last month alone. You can go to our website and our Facebook page to learn more about what you can do. Bottom line, gag actions work. We need um, all the volunteers we can get. The next meeting again is December the 6th. And let's remember while we're talking about getting up and uh, doing things to become um, a WBAI buddy. buddy. <laughs> you can do this by texting WBAI to the number 41444. You can go on their website and donate. Um, do it in the name of GAG. Let them know that you're out there listening to our radio show. Thank you so much, and happy Thanksgiving to happy all. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Is this the line for tickets to take a rocket to the moon? No, this is the line for tickets to take Christ out of Christmas. Oh, who's doing that? Doing what? Taking Christ out of Christmas. Malachi McCourt and John McDonough, along with Corey Kilgannon and Father Pat. Father Pat? Maloney, the oh. saint of the Lower East Side. Well, that sounds better than taking a rocket to the moon. It is. Malachi's tales of Christmas and Limerick. John McDonough's story about lighting up Times Square with greetings to the IRA. Real Christmas cheer. Oh, to make the season bright. See, Malachi, I am an atheist. Thank God, McCourt. John McDonough and friends take Christ out of Christmas, a holiday fundraiser for WBAI at the Commons, 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, on Sunday, December 9th, from 3 to 4.30 p.m. For tickets, only $20 each. Go to WBAI.org. Tell them, Satan sent you. Ladies and gentlemen, Spend part of your Thanksgiving weekend with the award-winning Midnight Ravers. Listen to our four-hour Led Zeppelin tribute on Friday, November 23, 2018, from 12 midnight to 4 a.m. Once you check out Zeppelin at the Temple, you'll understand why Rolling Stone magazine has called this pioneering rock band the heaviest band of all time. So mark that date on your calendar. That's Friday, November 23, from 12 midnight to 4 a.m as we present Zeppelin at the Temple, only on WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM. You know it'll be ravelicious. The Midnight Ravers, where every show is a special.
Join the African Diaspora International Film Festival from November 23rd to December 9th and celebrate black life on the big screen. Discover over 60 entertaining and revealing fiction and documentary films from over 30 countries. Explore ADIFF's identity politics and Black Panther program. Discover Kofi Annan's suspended dream and the life of 2018 Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Dennis McQuaid. The African Diaspora International Film Festival, November 23rd to December 9th in Manhattan. For tickets and schedule, go to nyadiff.org or call 212-864-1760. This is where Black Lives Matter. Check for Cat Radio Cafe. Uh, testing. Testing. Stay tuned for Cat Radio Cafe Tuesday night at 7 on WBAI. I'm Janet Coleman. I'm David Dozer. The Displaced Playwright. On tomorrow's show, we will be joined by primo political satirist Will Durst to appraise the Durst case scenario after the midterms and Coney Island USA's artistic director Dick Zegan on writing and directing the education of Al Capone as if told by Jimmy Durante a Brechtian cabaret, performing at the world-famous Sideshows by the Seashore. Tuesday night at 7 on WBAI. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Cat Radio Cafe. Meet a cat's like Coney Island. One giant cat box. Hi, I'm Laura Flanders, and this is The Laura Flanders Show, the TV and radio program that seeks to raise radical spirits by interviewing forward-thinking people with real models of shifting power from the worlds of arts, entrepreneurship, politics, and activism.